I do want to take a quick poll just because I'm curious who's opened their presence already. Huh? Huh? Some of you are more impulsive there, huh? The rest are, I assume, more self-controlled. If you would, turn in your gospel to Gospel of Mark, first chapter. We'll be reading from 18 to 25. There's nothing new here for most of us, maybe for some. But let's pay close attention to the reading of God's Word as He gives, us to, as he gives it to us in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Pray with me. Father, this is an old familiar story to us. Uh, For those of us who've been in the church, this is the many dozen time we've heard this. Uh, Make it fresh to us today. Lord, every time your word is preached, it goes forward with your power, and I pray that you would add weight to these words this morning and you would speak to your people. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Please be seated. I'm sure many of you have heard the old story of the uh, blind men, several of them, I don't know the number, who were put in a room with an elephant and told to describe him, him, her, whatever. And, you know, as they feel around and they come across the elephant, they bump into him at various places. And so the descriptions are all different. You know, one man feels his side and says an elephant's like a wall. Another man grabs him by the tail and says an elephant's like a snake. Another man gets his arms around a, a leg and says he's like a tree trunk. You know, now, which, which one of these men were right? That's right, all of them. And because we have multiple witnesses, we have a better idea, a clearer picture of what this elephant looks like, though they were blind in the beginning, right? Well, the Lord has seen fit to give us four Gospels, four stories, four witnesses, four testimonies of the life, death, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting. We have four different witnesses. And so while some leave some things out, While some things report things differently, emphasize different things based on various reasons for who they're writing to, whatever it may be, their own personalities, different issues. But yet at the end of the four Gospels, we have such a rich picture of Jesus. You know, it's very interesting when we come to the birth of Jesus, there's differences. You know, Mark mentions the birth of Jesus zero times. He just appears and begins his public ministry. We read from the Gospel of John this morning. 
And John is very much theological, almost philosophical, and he talks about the pre-existent Jesus and his incarnation in terms that are somewhat mysterious, maybe a little confusing at times. So John's very different. Luke and Matthew come closer together. Uh, you know, there's angelic visitations and announcements. Although the angels in Luke start with the birth of John the Baptist, and then the angel comes to Mary and announces you're going to have a child. We get to Matthew, and, and there's some similarities, but he's very different. And I've always been fascinated by why the difference. Why the difference? I, why would Matthew choose to start where he did? Gives us a genealogy tracing Jesus' life back almost to the beginning, his descendants back almost to the beginning. And then why does he, why, why does he report the angel's visitation to Joseph? This would be after the angel visits Mary, and she's totally left out. You know, why? Well, I can't answer all those questions. That gets loud when I look down, doesn't it? Sorry. I'm new at this. Bear with me. I can't answer all these questions, but I am going to point out today, in this angelic visitation to Joseph, Matthew seems to focus, or at least I have been led to focus, on one particular verse and one particular pronouncement. And that's going to be verse 21. So although we read verses 18 through 25, we're going to focus on verse 21 and not even the whole verse. We're going to focus on the second half of the verse. But I will read the whole one more time. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he, this is where we're focusing, he will save his people from their sins. If we were going to translate that a little more literally, we would say he himself. There's an emphasis there. He is the Savior. He will save his people, from their sins. So why does Matthew start here? I wonder if it has something to do with Matthew's background. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was considered a traitor to his people. Matthew probably cheated some people to enrich himself. Maybe Matthew's sins were very poignant to him. And so he starts off recalling the angel's pronouncement to Joseph that Jesus is a savior for his people. And it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now, this verse breaks up very simply. There's no special secret to outlining this because it's just got a couple of different clauses, and we're going to use that for our outline. Your outline has four points this morning. And in our verse, what we see is a singular Savior. I'll pause so you can write this down. A singular Savior, a definite salvation, a particular people in a deadly condition. And if you wanted to form that all into one sentence, you, you would say that the angel here announces that there is a singular, that in Jesus we have a singular Savior who brings a definite salvation for a particular people, rescuing them from a deadly condition. So if you can get all that in your head, you have the sermon this morning, if you remember nothing else. Now let's look at these one at a time. A singular Savior. We have to start out with his identity. There is a name given. You shall call his name Jesus. In some senses, the name is very special. In some senses, it's really not. It's connected to the Old Testament, same name as Joshua, even connected to Hosea, but it's Yehoshua, and it means Jehovah saves. But at this time in Palestine, there were all kinds of little Jesus boys running around. You know, this was everybody, this, this is connected to Joshua. So he was an Old Testament hero and Hosea, one of the prophets. And so it was a popular name to name their children. And so there'd be little, little people running around with their Jesus t-shirts, fan club. But on the other hand, even though it was a common name, the angel is announcing here that this Jesus, this one is special. This one is different 
than all these other Jesuses. This is different than the Old Testament Joshua, different than Hosea, different than all the little boys named Jesus, for it is this one. This Jesus has a special purpose. This is the Jesus that we have been waiting for, for this one will save his people from their sins. So this Jesus was no mere namesake. We see in our text that there was a virgin birth, which makes this obviously very special. And if we go through the context and go a little bit broader, which we did not read, we see that he was a descendant of David in fulfillment of the prophecy of 2 Samuel 7, where David wanted to build a house for the Lord and God said, no, you shall not do it. You are not the one, but I will build a house for you. And after you are gone, I will raise up one of your descendants and give him your kingdom and he will sit on your throne forever. This Jesus, the one who will bring salvation for his people. If we trace his descendants, his ancestry back a little bit further, we come to Abraham. Abraham. So here we also, in Genesis 12 and 15, when God called Abraham, he said, go, go where I tell you to go. And in your descendants, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he gives this promise to him in Genesis 12 and 15. He repeats it to him, in your seed, the seed, that's this Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. We can go further. We can go back to Genesis 3.15 where God said the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. We can look throughout the rest of the Old Testament in the time of Moses who said that after him a prophet would come. We can go to Isaiah. We can see the suffering servant who would come and give his life to save God's people. We can see the branch. We can see in Jeremiah, the good shepherd. We can see the bread from heaven. All of these things being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so that this is not your ordinary run-of-the-mill Jesus. This Jesus will save his people from their sins. So when we speak of a singular Savior, we identify this one Jesus as not just one of many, but a very special Jesus. This Jesus will save his people, from their sins. And also when I say singular, I want to throw this in there. When I say singular Savior, there is no other. There is no other. I almost didn't put this in here because, to be honest, I'm a little afraid because I'm human. (laughs) I'm human, but there is no other. There have been many pretenders over the centuries. You know, whether you look at Siddhartha Gautama, or any incarnation of the Buddha, he is not your savior. He's not anybody's savior. You can look at any one of the millions of gods of the Hindu religion. They are not your savior. They are no one's savior. You can look at Muhammad and Allah, or the God of Islam. They are pretenders to the throne. That is not your savior. And in our day and time, I'm going to throw this one in just because. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, is not your your savior. I throw that in because... Like many of you, I listen to a man named Glenn Beck once in a while, and I do enjoy his radio show, but Glenn Beck, during the holidays, does a terrible job of minimizing all the differences and says that Mormons are just another Christian religion. Joseph Smith is not your Savior. That is not the same Jesus. That is not the same God. And it is not the same salvation. So we have this specific Jesus who will save his people from their sins, and there is no other. No other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but Jesus, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, sent by God to save his people. That's a singular Savior. And we move from there and we look at a definite salvation. And again, it's very clear in the text, for he 
will save. Now that's a future verb. It's a future verb. It's in a mood of certainty, although that doesn't guarantee a reality, except that here we have a heavenly pronouncement. We have an angel sent by God, which gives it a certainty. And while it's future, at the time it was spoken, of course, now we're looking back and it has been accomplished. There is a mood of certainty here. This, this pronouncement shows a purpose or an intent. You will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And what God intends to do, or the intent of God, is closely connected to the effectiveness of God because God is, after all, omnipotent, and there's nothing beyond his ability. If he chooses to perform a deed, if he chooses to create, if he chooses to eliminate, God can do so. So what God decrees, what God intends to do, God accomplishes. This goes back in the church almost all the way to the beginning. St. Augustine was one of the first ones to actually spell out this connection between the intent of God and the accomplishment of God. For that which God intends to do, God accomplishes. And when God sends his son to die for sins, that he might gather his people together to himself, then God accomplishes that work. That is important. What God intends to do God accomplishes. I have a couple of verses to back this up that are explicit statements. In Luke 19.10, we see that the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus, has come to seek and save that which was lost. He had a point in coming. He had an intent in what he came to do. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. In Galatians 1, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. John 6, 38, 39. For I have come down, Jesus speaking, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. From these verses and many other, I I had to stop myself. This is throughout the scriptures. This is undeniable. From these verses and many others, the intent of the incarnation was to save the people of God. And what God intends to do, God accomplishes. There is also, throughout the New Testament, the language of salvation. Other words that are used to describe this transaction, this accomplishment of God. There's a word such as redemption we see in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood. A redemption is a price paid to redeem, a price paid to deliver something. If you've ever gone to a pawn shop because you needed cash, which I haven't done, thankfully, but you turn in your watch, they give you money. How do you get your watch back? You redeem it. You make a payment for it. And when the payment is made, the watch is yours. It's the same language used to the slave market in New Testament times. Slave, somebody sometimes were sold into slavery to pay for a debt. How do you get your family member back? How do you get yourself out of debt? You make a payment. You redeem that slave. That's important. Remember that. Another word is propitiation. Propitiation from Romans 3 is a sacrifice which turns aside wrath. Christ gave himself as a propitiation in his blood. It turns aside the wrath of God which is due for sin. It turns aside wrath. It accomplishes something. Now what would a redemption be? that did not redeem, it would not be a redemption, would it? What would a propitiation be that did not propitiate? It would no longer be a propitiation. What would a salvation be that did not save? 
It would not be a salvation. What God intends to do, God does. And to restrict his ability in this way is to deny the plain teaching of Scripture, and it is to make God impotent. That's such an insult. Such an insult. There are people who teach this. There are people who teach that Jesus gave his life or God gave his son so that some would have a mere opportunity (laughs) to come to heaven. Do you understand that if there's nothing but a mere opportunity, then maybe we would just choose not to come. Does that not make God and his son a fool? But God is no fool. What God intends to do, God accomplishes. If God intends to save someone, God saves somebody. Jesus came to save, not make it possible, not to give an opportunity, but to save completely in his work, his ministry, his death and resurrection on behalf of us, his people, was sufficient and actually accomplished the salvation he came to bring. So we have a singular Savior. We have a definite salvation. This definite salvation is for a particular people. You go back to your verse, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His people. This is one of those places where uh, it does not say all people. His people means the people belonging to him, the people that are his possession. This is his chosen people, his elect, some would say. He came to save his people. Since God can accomplish and will accomplish all that he intends to do, if God intended to save all people, then all would be saved, would they not? But isn't it clear to plain reason and to the scriptures that they are not? And it should not bother you if God loves some in a way other than he loves some others. Isn't that also consistent with our understanding? The fact is, I love my wife more than I love Glenn's wife. Is there not a difference? I love my sons more than I love Doug's son. Is there not a difference? God makes distinctions among people, and he always has. This is clear. You can go back through the scriptures from beginning to end. You'll find that God has always made a distinction. We've already mentioned Genesis 3. There are two seeds, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, and these are at enmity to one another. There is the chosen seed, the chosen line of God's people. In fact, the rest of the scriptures can almost be seen as a tale of two seeds. Can it not? So there are two seeds. Following that, God chose Noah and his family to save in the ark and no other. God makes distinctions among his people. Out of Ur, the city of Ur, which by the way at the time was probably the largest city in the world, Could have been. As many as 100,000 people in population. There's your little historic note I couldn't ignore. Called Abraham out of this city. He didn't call the others. He called Abraham. Even among Abraham's sons, he said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Even within Israel, David was his chosen, whereas Saul was rejected. There are other people throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, throughout whatever you want to look at, who God uses, who he raises up, who he overthrows, who he directs, who he tears down. He uses them for his purpose. He is kind to them in that he provides for all their needs for a time. He showers his blessings abroad, raining on the just and the unjust alike, but yet they are not his people in the same way because he loves some 
called the church his bride more than he loves others in a different way than he loves others. God came, sent Jesus to save his people. From Jesus' own mouth in Matthew 25, which I will not read all of, but he tells a story about how the people of the earth are gathered together at the last time, and they are like sheep and goats, and the sheep will be on the right hand and the goats on the left hand, and the sheep are there and go into eternal salvation, and the goats are separated for a judgment to come. Not all people are his people. The goats are destined for destruction, punishment. His people are destined for a full, complete salvation, for he will save them from their sins. So God has a particular people. We will come back to that. Now, what are we saved from? What does our text say? We are saved from our sins. Now, there was a certain time in my life when I would have said, big deal. You know, I'm really not that bad anyway. Right? I mean, you've never done that? You never compared yourself to someone else and said, I measure up all right. But yet, it must be bad. Look what God had to do to fix it. Sin cost him his son, at least for a time. Sin cost the cross for Jesus. It must be a bad thing. It would behoove us. There's a word you don't use in normal conversation. It would behoove us to understand a little bit more about sin and what we are saved from. First of all, let me just say, we are not saved simply from a bad life, as tragic as that is. I could weep for some of the people I know and how hard their lives are. feel bad. But salvation from that bad life and yet not saved from your sins is still lost. You understand? We're not saved from a low self-esteem, as I've heard from some TV preachers saying the greatest sin you can commit is to not believe in yourself. Hogwash. That's not what you're saved from. We're not just simply saved from oppression or any other ism or thing you want to put in there, but we are saved from our sin and all that that means and all that that costs. Let me give you a definition. Sin is every departure from the way of righteousness, both human and divine. But that's a little hard to relate to, is it not? Every departure from righteousness, both human and divine. Now, that can mean not doing what God says to do. It can mean doing what God says not to do. So it's a violation of the law of God. After all, he made everything. He has the right to tell you how to live. He has the right to tell his creatures what to do. But even then, he doesn't do it just to take your joy away. He does it because he knows how life is lived well. And so he says, hey, don't do this. That's bad for you. Do this instead. So sin is a departure from the way of righteousness. Or how about, I have this definition I've been working on. It's a little different. I believe it's true. I don't know if it's enough to sum up everything, but I think it's fair and it's good for our meditations this morning. Definition number two is, how about a dependent creature trying to live as if he's not? I think that's fair. You know, I go back to the garden, and God said, all of this you can have. All of it. I give it to you. Don't touch this tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But after they were tempted to look closer at that tree, they thought, you know what? I can decide for myself. It surely looks pleasing, good for food, and it's going to make me smart. At that moment, the creature who, whether they will admit it or not, is dependent upon God for life and breath and all things, said, I will do what I want. Sin is a dependent creature. 
refusing to live as one. And so they live in rebellion against the goodness of God. I think that's a fair definition. As if the creature knows best which way to live the life that God himself has created. God has not only created life and created us fit for that kind of life, he has given us guidelines for how to live that kind of life, and we say, I'll do what I want. That's sin. And the fact is, left to ourselves by birth, that's how we all start out. We all start out in opposition to him. We all start out guilty condemned under a curse because of sin in us, because of sin in the world. Our confession actually goes so far as to say that we are guilty threefold because we are guilty imputed, inherited, and actual. And that just simply means that when Adam and Eve sinned as our representative, we were guilty too because he represented us. But if you think that's not fair, we also inherited a corruption, and so we are born in sin. And all you need to do to believe that is to look around at the children in here who are so innocent, so beautiful, so precious, and will someday stamp their foot and point their finger at you and say, no, where'd they learn that? Born that way. They want what they want. And if that doesn't seem fair, because after all, we're born that way, well, then this imputation of sin and this corruption of sin that is in us also then leads us to sin, and we do it, and we like it, and we wouldn't have it any other way. And so we are guilty of this sin. And left to ourselves in this condition, we are helpless, we are hopeless. And if we were going to be totally honest, we're careless. We don't care. We like it that way. We're okay with that. Leave me alone. I'll do what I want. Why don't we care? I think left to ourselves, we don't see sin for what it is or how harmful it is. We don't see its end, death. We don't see that it degrades us to the point where we are no longer human as God intended us to be. Sin is degrading. I know a man named J.W. My wife knows. My boys have met. Good godly man, works in a post office on a college campus. J.W. had a rough life, and I'm not going to tell the whole story. But he was given his testimony one day, talking about how he was living on the street. And there was this one little old lady who always singled him out among the crowd of him and his homies and tried to witness to him, say, why are you living like that? You don't have to. God has a plan for you. He gave Jesus for your sins. Yeah, leave me alone. Then he was describing one night how he was crawling into a dumpster once again, bedding down for the night, shooing the flies away from his food that he had found. And he was just overcome and giving this testimony and choked up. And he said, how low sin can take you. But we don't see it. Our lives are not all that drastic or dramatic, are they? I mean, we're pretty comfortable, most of us. We're fairly middle class, somewhat educated. Our lives are easy. You're just as lost. It's just as degrading. You're not living the life you were intended to if you insist on living it your way and on your own. And it's not just that. That's you personally. How about the curse on the world because of sin? How about it? You know, I don't get out much. I don't travel much. I don't do much. So my sphere is fairly limited. But in the past few weeks, I heard of a young mother in her 40s who died. Left a husband of almost 30 years and and several children. One a teenager still at home. That's because of sin. 
Not hers. Not her specifically. But that's sin in the world. That's the cost of sin. How about in my little sphere? I'm not trying to make you feel sorry for me, by the way. This is just what I come across. In my little sphere, I have an 11-year-old nephew who just has somehow become diabetic. Now, it runs in my family fairly strong, so it's not new to us. But when I watch my brother for 35 years struggle with this disease, it'll slowly kill him. And I think, what a burden to place on this 11-year-old. That's because of sin in the world. There's any number of situations when a relationship fractures, when a marriage falls apart. Put your own situation there. You know people. This is sin. This is the effect of sin. This is the cost of sin. We don't see how deadly or costly it is until, by God's grace, He opens our eyes to see it. And then at the same time, He shows us Jesus. This Jesus. Who came to save His people from their sins. And not just their own sins personally, but to save them also from this effect of sin. To save him also from this curse of sin that is on all things as he begins to roll this back. As he begins, as we read earlier, as we're going to sing in a few minutes, to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Because Jesus is he who came to save his people from their sins. And he is going to roll back the curse on all creation and make all things new. Now, do you know this Jesus? Are you one of his people? Just because I say he has a people does not mean I'm standing up here arrogantly as if, hey, God picked me and not you. There's room for more. We don't know who his people are except those who will come to him trusting in Jesus and his work for their sins. Those are his people. Do you feel the weight of your sin? Is there anything that's been said to make you think, have I just pricked the nerve at all today? Because if I accomplish nothing else then by the authority in me this morning in this pulpit, speaking the words of Christ himself, I beg you to wake up. I pray that God would open your eyes. This Jesus came to save sinners. He himself is able to save anyone who will come to him. He himself is willing to save all who will come to him. He himself said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus. It's not just a baby in a manger. It's the Savior of His people. And if you are His people, then your only response is to rejoice. What is spoken in our text this morning is spoken of His future, but it has now been accomplished. He has saved His people from their sins. Has He called you to Himself? Then he has saved you from your sins and he will save you from all of its effects as well as he rolls back the curse. As he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. It is this Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my prayer is is that you would simply take your word and make it effective today. I pray that your people would be assured. I pray that they would have a newfound confidence in the reality that you have saved them from their sin and what you intend to do, you accomplish, and you do not fail.
And Lord, if there's anybody here who does not know you, I pray that you would disturb them. I pray that they would not be comfortable with life as it has been or doing what they think is best. Disturb them and draw them to yourself. May they see Jesus for who he is. He is a Savior who saves. It's in his name we pray. Amen.